Matthew chapter 14, we're continuing our series in Matthew, um, and today we're reading the second half of chapter 14, so it's on page uh, 820, and we're reading from verse uh, 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do you not be afraid? Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised him, they sent word around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us your word so that we might hear the voice of Christ this morning. We pray by your spirit be changing us, changing our hearts, and drawing us to yourself. We pray that in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Um, what does God find precious? If you're not a Christian here this morning, what do you think God finds valuable? What is it in this world that he loves? Well, the Bible tells us that it's his church. Uh, it's his people. It's Christians. Uh, Listen to these words from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 4. God says to his people, you are precious in my eyes and honoured, and I love you. Uh, He loves his people, and so his grand plan of salvation is to bring his people into his presence to enjoy him and glorify him forever. And yet, and yet it doesn't always feel like that, does it? When we look at the worldwide church, would you conclude that we are the precious object of God? You might ask, if the church is so precious, why is she persecuted? Why does she suffer? If God loves us so dearly, why does he allow any of us to be hurt? And for most of us this morning, that's not an intellectual question. That's a question that comes from the heart. In our text... Uh, in, this, in this text in Matthew, we find the disciples tossed to and fro by a storm. In verse 24, they were beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Here we have uh, the very early church, the seed of the church, and it doesn't look particularly impressive. It looks fragile. It looks weak. The physical force of the world are attacking it. And that's often what we see in the church if you look around us. It looks, it looks to be honest, quite fragile. It looks weak. 
Uh, around the world, the church is battered by opposition on every side. And setting aside persecution, Christians simply aren't spared many of the trials that come to this world. We, we get ill. We, are, we get struck by poverty. We suffer deep and horrendous loss. And yet in this account, the disciples, the seed of the church, are suffering trials because they're being faithful. I don't know if you noticed that. Verse 22, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus sends the disciples into the storm. Now, now to be sure, trials may arise from disobedience. Jonah ran from God and was caught up in a storm, and that was in order to discipline him. Uh, but the point here is that the disciples have been obedient to Christ. He, he told them to cross the lake, and they crossed the lake. And now they're caught in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a, of a storm. And uh, we see that as well in the church, don't we? When the church is faithful, uh, it seems to be more severely persecuted rather than less. When it's obedient to the word of God, more trials come rather than less. Maybe you can relate personally to that. No one's perfect. No one's perfectly obedient to God, but you've worked hard to obey his word. You, you tried to love Jesus and follow him. You've pursued holiness. You've killed sin, and yet God sends trial after trial into your life has left you feeling just a bit broken, just a bit fragile. Uh, all around seems darkness. Do you notice in the passage that the disciples suffer this trial in the blackness of night? Maybe you can relate. Why, O oh God, do you send your people trials? Well, on the surface, as Christians, our trials may look purposeless to us. Uh, but this passage is here to show us that trials are not meaningless. They do not come to us because God does not care. Now, the trial before us has a clear purpose. This trial reveals the glory of Christ to us and so draws us to him. This trial reveals the glory of Christ to us and is drawing us to him. That's, if you like, that's the big picture of what's going on in this passage. In the heart of uh, the account, verse 27 Virtually perfectly in the centre, Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And the key is to realise that when he says it is I, what he literally says is I am. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And, and many of us will know I am is the name of God. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is sent to uh, the Egyptians, he asks God for his name. So he might tell the Egyptians who's sending him. And God reveals his name to be, I am who I am. He says to Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. Uh, if you flick through the Old Testament, every time you see the word Lord capitalised, L-O-R-D, capitalised, it just means, just literally means I am. And the no name that God gives himself, Jesus here is claiming as his own. The man who's walking across the waters in the raging storm and yet is completely unaffected uh, by the storm raging around him, by creation around him, claims the name of the creator. And with that name, he claims all it means to be the I am, to be God. God, God reveals his name to us, by the way, to help us understand uh, something of his nature, something of what he's like. Uh, the governing thing I think he reveals in, in the name I am is that he does not change Whatever he was like before he made the world, he continues to be like all the way through into 
eternity. He's a God who never changes in his purposes. Uh, it's why we can trust his promises, that his word doesn't change, because he doesn't change. He's declared that he'll gather his church to himself so that she can enjoy him and glorify him forever. And Jesus walking across the water, showing his very actions, uh, the very action of walking, that he is the I am. And he does it, make this, he does it to bring assurance and to draw his disciples to him. That's, that's if you like, the governing purpose of Jesus' revelation. And this revelation comes to us. It doesn't come to us in the physical person of Jesus. We don't hear his voice physically speaking. No, it comes to us by his word, through his spirit. So that even though we live 2,000 years after it happened, we share in the same revelation that his disciples saw. But the problem here for us is that while we intellectually share in the revelation, we understand who Christ is. We understand that he's saying that he's the God of the Old Testament. But unlike the disciples, our hearts just aren't always that affected by the knowledge. We know it. But we don't feel it. We understand it. But it doesn't really affect us. We don't respond to the revelation as we should. Jesus' self-revelation as the God of the Old Testament, as the I Am, to be honest, leaves us feeling maybe a bit bored. It may even be this morning, as, we, as we've been looking at this passage, that you've been thinking, Jesus is God, I, I can't know this. How, how does the revelation that Christ brings have its intended effect of drawing the disciples to him? Well, it's because of the trial. It's because of the storm they're in. Think about it. Jesus could have revealed his identity at, at any time. Uh, but he chooses to do it when the disciples are in the midst of a trial because only then will it affect them as it should. And it's often, not always, but it's often in our trials that God gives us uh, that the revelation of Christ, this revelation, has its intended effects. I'm not saying that's the only purpose in trials that God gives us, but I think it's uh, the central purpose, or our central purpose. And I'm not saying we can't be drawn to Christ without trials. We can. But trials come to us to draw us to Christ. And there are many ways in which we're drawn to Christ when we suffer. The first one is in verses 24 through to 27. Our trials cause us to find comfort in Christ alone. They cause us to find comfort in Christ alone. They cause us to draw to Christ as our only hope. In our passage, if you notice, the, the distance between the disciples and Jesus is emphasised. Jesus is up a mountain praying alone. We don't know what he's praying about, but he's alone. And his, his disciples are a long way from him, out, out far from land on the lake. Uh, and they're away from him for a long time as well. The storm sets in in the evening, so maybe about 6pm. But Jesus doesn't go to them until the fourth watch of the night, which, if you know your Roman timekeeping, as I'm sure we all do, that's about... 3am. So nine hours in all being physically battered by the storm without Christ with them. By the way, maybe you felt that yourself. You felt you've been besieged by trials and Christ has felt or maybe does feel far from you. Or when Jesus does come to them, their initial reaction is one of fright. Verse 25, they're terrified. 
And perhaps you can't blame them. It's not every day you see someone walking in water, stormy waters, towards you. But clearly the storm has left them feeling vulnerable by the storm. And so when Jesus first appears, they take fright. But, but Christ comes to them across the water in order to bring them comfort. He says, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. Have courage. Be comforted. And notice he, he doesn't bring their trial to the end. The storm presumably, presumably is raging on. He brings them comfort while they're in the storm. Now the question is this. Would the, trial have found, would the disciples have found comfort in the revelation of Christ about the storm? If they're, if they're sailed along with the stars overhead, with the breeze behind them, would Christ appearing to them have brought them comfort? Well, I doubt it. The trial causes his presence to become precious to them. In Psalm 23, the Lord's our shepherd, a famous psalm. Why is the psalmist not afraid of the valley of the shadow of death? Why? Because, verse 4, he says to God, you are with me. Children, a, a quick question for you. Children, when will you value a fireman more? Uh, when your home is on fire or when it's not? When are you going to value a fireman more? When your home is on fire or when it's not? Go on, Isaac. That's absolutely right. When your house is on fire. When your house is not on fire, the presence of the fireman, however nice a guy he might be, will not raise much emotion in you. If your house is on fire, then even, but if your house is on fire, then even the sirens approaching the distance will give you hope and comfort you. And can I say this morning, if you're feeling in darkness, if you're feeling the tears of a trial, we'll hear his voice. He says, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. And you see, his words accomplish what they command. They command comfort, and so they bring comfort. Maybe you feel far from him, or hear his voice, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. His, his words bring his presence to us, so treasure them and find comfort in him. It's also a challenge to us if we're, if we're living life well, if there's no trial or suffering in our life. As Jesus' church, we belong to him. The Bible even calls us, um, calls Christ our husband. And as our husband, he desires to be our greatest comforter. So, so what do you treasure more than you treasure Christ? It's not wrong to treasure other things. Uh, your, your family, for instance, or your friends. But are they supplanting your affections for Christ? Our trials strip us of other comforts and draw us to find comfort in Christ. Second, verses 28 to 31, our trials cause us to cling to Christ alone, to cling to Christ alone, to draw us to him as our only strength for the entirety of our Christian life. Peter hears Jesus and he responds, he gets it. He gets it better to be with Jesus in the storm than cowering in the boat. So he calls, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And uh, Jesus responds, come. And uh, he provides a miracle so that uh, Peter comes to him. And the point is that Peter only comes to him sustained by Christ, not by himself. It all goes wrong in verse 30 when, when his eyes are drawn for circumstances and the storm around him. And so he begins to sink. Focused on the storm, he has stopped depending on Christ. If you like, fear takes away his memory. Alarm confuses his reason. 
And so he sinks. And as he sinks, he cries out, save me. And Jesus responds immediately and does. But the key is what Jesus says after he, says, after he saves Peter. He says, are you of little faith? Why did you doubt? Literally, that means, are you of little faith? Why did you waver? How did Peter waver? Well, it says in his faith that Christ would not be strong enough to sustain him. The one sure way to be miserable in this life is to focus our eyes on what's going on around us and on that thing alone. The one sure way to persevere and endure as a Christian is to depend on Christ and Christ's strength alone, to cling to him. Peter gets it right in the end. The fear of the trial brings him to his knees and he throws everything towards Christ. Save me, he cries, and Jesus does. Many Christians have a problem in their Christian life as they try and follow Christ. We depend on Christ and something else to keep us going. Christ plus our commitment to church. Christ plus one, plus our ability to fight sin, plus our friends, plus our wisdom and our strength. Now, those things are good things, but we depend on them as well as Christ. We try and lean on them like we lean on crutches. Uh, trial comes and it simply shows us that our crutches are inadequate to do the job, to get us to Christ, following him. Uh, it's only then we realise that the plus ones that we've been adding to Christ are never going to be good enough to take us into his arms. If we lean on those plus ones more than we lean on Christ, we'll find ourselves sinking. Only Christ's strength can keep us going, so depend on him, pray to him treasure his promises, cling to him, cry, save me. What is it that Paul says in Philippians 4? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not that he can do all things in the sense of being able to do the impossible, but that he can endure all things. He can persevere through any trial, any persecution, as long as he stores his strength from Christ. And trials were drawn to find comfort in Christ alone, to cling to Christ alone. And lastly, sometimes God sends us trials so that we worship Christ alone. 32 and 33, we worship Christ alone. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is where the revelation of Christ is meant to lead us to worshipping him. We're made to worship God and so we're made to worship his son. But often our vision is clouded and our hearts are wayward. Can I say when life is easy, we easily worship other things. Not always, but when life is easy, we easily worship other things, money, family, careers and so on. And sometimes trials are simply a result of those idols proving unworthy of our worship. Not always, but sometimes trials, sometimes trials are straight up painful because our, even, even if our hearts are right with God, but sometimes our trials come because our job has failed to provide the satisfaction we demand of it, or our spouses aren't perfect, or our money doesn't buy the relational ache that we have in our heart. Trials show these things up. When we suffer, we see the glory of Christ's revelation 
I am more clearly. Think about it like this. Think of a, if Christ is a great, big, bright spotlight in a room, and you're in that room, and if there, but if there are hundreds and hundreds of other lights, and your focus is going to be taken away from the spotlight and drawn to all these other things. In order to refocus on the spotlight, sometimes the other lights just need to be switched off so we can see him and him alone. God formed his church to worship his son. We're made for him. And sometimes we suffer so that he regains that central position in our hearts. These men of Gennesaret get who Jesus is. They realize that Jesus is someone to run to, to cling to, to look to. And so they bring all those who are sick, all those who are suffering. They realize that Jesus is the person who's sufficient for any trial that anyone in Gennesaret is facing. They sense that he's a man of greatness, of great glory. And so they come to him. See how they come to him, by the way. They implore him just to touch the hem of his robe. They come humble and pleading, but they come to him. Whatever the trial is, they come to him, whatever the illness. And what's the sentence that should lift our hearts this morning, that should make us sing? What's well, this, right at the end. And as many as touched it were made well. All, that, all who were sick and broken came to him on their knees and they were made well. Not one of them was missed out. Each one was saved completely. That's the picture. No matter how hard the trial, no matter how distant Jesus may feel, no person who cries out to Christ, save me, will be left sinking. I cannot tell you what Jesus will, will do in your trial. He comes to the disciples and he doesn't take it away immediately. Whether, I can't tell you whether he'll take it away or whether it, whether it might intensify. I can't tell you how long you'll be in the midst of hurting or what even will come to you in the future. But I can tell you this, you can find comfort in Christ alone. You can cling to Christ alone. You can worship him alone and he will see you safely home. And I wonder if you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, do you realise that, that maybe, just maybe, the pain you feel, that you face, is, is meant to draw you to Christ, not push you away from him. And if you are a Christian this morning, do you know that you are precious to God? That he sends us suffering sometimes so that we draw, to draw us to him, so that we find him precious. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you love us and that we are precious to you and that you'll have our hearts for your own and that you'll do what you do so that you draw us to yourself, you draw us to your son, the Lord Jesus. Please, when suffering comes our way, would we find complete comfort in him? Would we cling to him and depend on him? And would we worship him alone? Amen.